freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously, without instruction. See what the Empire has done to your lives? Your families and your freedom? Good people will fight if we leave them. The rebellion is spreading. Now we take the war to them. The Republic will be reorganized. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. To wake up, there is one way out. Fight the empire. Stop it. Long live the empire. Fight the empire. Let's call it war. Remember this. Try. Hey, Sophie. Hey, Eleanor. Shit. Are you having a moment? This one's stupid. What type of D&D character would Jin Erso make? A rogue. A, a rogue one. <laughs> Welcome to Daughters of Ferrix, a podcast about history, politics, and queer stuff in Star Wars. I am Eleanor Mueller. I am Sophia Dunstan. Am I supposed to end, say something else? No, that's else? the end of the podcast. Oh, okay. We're done now. That was easy. We're going to make so much money. <laughs> I'll remind you, the podcast makes negative money. you got to spend money to make money. However much I do to maintain our web domain that people have definitely gone to, www.daughtersofferrix.com. Visit it. Visit it or I will podcast. come to your house and redacted. That is a threat. Legally, that is a threat. Today is going to be a little bit different. Instead of coming at you with a topic, we are going to read something. We're going to be reading a, an essay, well, a chapter that is an essay, out of the book Strategy Strikes Back, How Star Wars Explains Modern Military Conflict, uh, which was a book recommended to me as an interesting read by author Chris Kempshaw. Strategy Strikes Back is a collection of writings from uh, American military and strategic experts on the portrayal and efficacy of war in Star Wars. We're going to get some perspectives from the troops whomst we stand. Uh, yeah, the Daughters of Ferrick's <laughs> official standpoint on the troops. We stay on the troops. We stand. I've never had any issues with the troops. If you think about it, us talking about the troops on our podcast, we're the real heroes of the Iraq war. You could Sophie, have at least like picked a war that's still going on. The Vietnam War. I could see, be, that's I, very I funny could be like Jordan Peterson and act like the Cold War is still going on. That's very funny because the U.S. is now selling F-16s to Vietnam because they hate the Chinese way more than they hate the United States. <laughs> Didn't know they were doing that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So U.S. military moment. The excerpt that we're going to be reading is the chapter Civil Military Relationships in Star Wars as written by Daniel Maurer. Uh, Maurer is a professor in the National Security Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlotte. Charlottesville, Virginia. That's a mouthful. It is such a mouthful. I'm surprised military, I did that this in one is, Why do you think the military, like, acronymizes everything? Because every single thing is just a mouthful. Like, NORAD, the North American something radio and defense thing. Uh, NORAD, the nonce <laughs> operation. Let me look it up. Response and... Dick team. Man, they're just so lazy with these things, too. Like, NORAD is actually the North American Aerospace Defense Command, but it's NORAD. Daniel Moore has been in various positions deployed within the United States Army's legal structure, including as a Chief of Military Justice, Judge Advocate Officer, and a Senior Strategist in the U.S.'s Chief Staff of the Army. So he has drank the sauce. The man knows what he's talking about. The man is talking about stuff with expertise. As far as that goes. The, the man is an expert in military law, which is what Nothing. he's writing about. He served twice in Iraq. I didn't include that in my bio, but that's true. Like on the ground? 
I doubt on the ground he was, well, I don't know. He was He's also a lawyer. A, yeah, I'm unsure. It's hard to tell. No one knows where Daniel Marr was during the 2003 <laughs> Iraqi invasion. And that is technically not an accusation of any war crimes done. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Battlefield, Battlefield misconduct. misconducts. No, he seems fine. So the chapter opens with a quote from British political scientist Christopher Coker, whose name I definitely spelled right right there. Christopher Coker. Christopher Coker from, like, fucking him upon Trent or whatever. Probably. In his book, Can War Be Eliminated?, Christopher Coker writes, Science fiction sets out not so much to explore the possibilities of the future as to comment on the crises that it sees imminent in contemporary life. In George Lucas's case, the Vietnam War. (laughs) George Lucas's perception of the Vietnam War. Correct. We're going to skip the first paragraph-ish. It's just preamble about what Star Wars is as a myth, and uh, I think we're familiar. Maurer writes, War, as philosopher Christopher Coker puts it, is part of our cultural and biological heritage. Regardless of the character of the conflict, war itself is resilient. In a footnote, Maurer writes that Christopher Coker argues that war remains ubiquitous because we are still enthralled to our inherited biology. I like Coker writing still there because it makes it's Not very forever. it's very transhumanist of coker it's very transgender of coker i for one am not enthralled to my inherited biology speak for yourself i take a pill about it as a necessary corollary to the presumption that war is resilient, right? The often ugly and often misunderstood relationship between the political leadership that governs, attempting to determine the shape and results of these affairs, and the military arm that employs the use of force to meet those strategic ends will always be one factor among many that defines outcomes. Concept. Basically here he's saying that the relationship between the military and the civilian leadership uh, defines outcomes. He should have been a political scientist because we're really good at writing things that everyone knows already, but fancily. So let's talk for a moment about civilian-military relationships. That that is what the essay is about. (laughs) Let's dive deep into the philosophies of my beloved Max Weber. Let's just fist our way into the (laughs) philosophies of Max. Isn't it He's German. I don't don't think it's I don't speak German. I speak French. So he was this political theorist from the olden days. And by olden days, I mean 1800s. And he was the guy who's like, a compulsory political organization with continuous operations will be called a state insofar as its administrative staff successfully upholds a claim to the monopoly of legitimate use of physical force within the boundaries of its area. In other words, this is the guy who came up with the whole being a state is the monopoly of force thing. Because the state needs to maintain this monopoly on violence in order to continue existing as a polity, it needs to maintain a relatively overwhelming military and peacekeeping force. And of course, that sounds very oppressive, but is actually often a good thing for the vast majority of people in society. Because if you have, like, bandits running around in the countryside, robbing people as they attempt to, like, go to their grandma's house in the woods or whatever, that is bad. Sophie's argument for a state is specifically based on her experience of the Old West. I think the Old West is like a good analogy for why a state is probably a good thing. I mean, maybe. The Old West didn't exactly last very long. Yeah, because it was a horrific anarchy (laughs) where everyone was just genociding Native Americans and each other all the time. I think there is some, shall we say, common sense to the idea that if your state has a monopoly on violence, then other people aren't going to be as violent. I also think that that is an idea that is a little bit propagandized, and I am hesitant to take on its head. That is fair. But if we look at countries where the government does not hold a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, we see some very poor outcomes, even compared to the sometimes quite awful outcomes in our own country. I mean, if you look at 
uh, Somalia, not Somaliland, Somalia, the other part. There is constant violence all the time, almost everywhere. If you look at the Democratic Republic of the Congo, they have been ensnared in endless successions of civil wars basically since independence. If you look at Libya after the U.S. and NATO intervention in Libya, where they kind of went in, got rid of the dictator, and forgot to put a new guy in charge, also has been just endless fighting. So I understand your hesitation with regards to the state having a monopoly on force, but when a state does not have a monopoly on the legitimate use of force or the overwhelming use of force, you end up with very bad situations for everyone involved. Well, that's certainly how nation states operate as we live in them. Walter Benjamin in Critique on Violence suggest that because of this monopoly on violence, making a state is an inherently violent act. And and the violence that a state does is called mythic or lawmaking violence. That violence might be like itself illegal by the state's own law, but it creates that state's uh, rule of law. This mythic violence can be mythologized to legitimize itself on like a cultural level. That's how you get flags and anthems. And that's how you get the veneration of like military forces to uphold that state violence. This isn't state violence in the the Gestapo come to beat, well, it might be the Gestapo come to beat you with a stick, but it's just kind of the state operating as states do. Actually, that brings up a really interesting point because there's this old Western movie called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. I don't know if you're familiar. I'm not familiar. So basically the idea of the film is that this kind of, you know, effete East Coast lawyer comes to a town in the West that is sort of trying to get statehood for itself because it wants to be a real town instead of, you know, under the thumb of the cattleman or whatever. You know, at first he tries all of these nonviolent methods to try and overcome the villain of the film, who is Liberty Valance, who is this kind of like, you know, spirit of the West, outlaw. Uh, if you look at his name, Liberty, maybe. Anarchist um, icon. Anarchist icon, Liberty Valance. My um, king. But in the end, he and his friend, who is the editor of the newspaper, have been elected to go to the statehood convention and like get statehood for the state. Liberty Valance trashes his friend's office and then challenges him to a duel. In this duel, he shoots Liberty Valance and then goes on to become, you know, a senator and the governor and the statehood happens. But the twist of the film is that he didn't actually shoot Liberty Valance and it was another guy sitting in the corner. So that just kind of reminded me of political communities or states establishing themselves via means that are technically illegal under their own laws. When even if the state isn't establishing itself in opposition to Liberty Valance... Judith Butler, writing in The Force of Nonviolence about Walter Benjamin, says that a legal regime that seeks to monopolize violence, that wants to be a state, must call every threat or challenge to that regime a violent one. With that, it can rename its own violence as a necessary or obligatory force, even as justifiable coercion, because it works through the law. As the law, it is legal and hence justified. If you are existing statelessly, based. No, if you are if you are existing in a stateless like way, like like a uh, Victor the terminal, yeah. If you are existing in a stateless way and other people want to form a state around you, then you're not going to sign on to that unless you are willing to give that state the monopoly on violence. So either you yourself are going to be in a situation where that state enforced violence is preferable to the violence that you are experiencing. Or you have to be coerced or convinced that there is a violence that you are experiencing. Well, we can certainly see a lovely little example of this in the 1800s U.S. government's treatment of Native American people. Basically the epitome of that, of, oh, we're going to form a state around you and you really don't have a choice in the matter. And of course, that's not always how a state forms. Well, yeah, sometimes a state forms when people go, let's make a state with us in it. 
Yeah, uh, so basically the key factor in this is because having military force is so central to the existence of the modern state, having overwhelming military force at its disposal relative to its population and, you know, sort of relative to its neighbors, the military always has the power to overthrow civilian authorities that nominally control it. Always. There has never been a state in history where the military did not have the power to overthrow the civilian government. And that is why military-civilian relations are so, so important, and keeping the military under civilian control is so, so important, because otherwise you do an Argentina or a Chile or a Spain, and your military takes over the government. Returning to Mar, he says, Star Wars. <laughs> Star Wars. You were so serious there for a second, podcast. and we're like, Star Wars. Back to our podcast. Star Wars is serious stuff. Mara says, Star Wars, if we watch closely enough, can introduce us to the subject of civil-military relationships, as well as any historical vignette. Continuing, the original trilogy contains several passages rich in their illustration of enduring civil-military relationship themes. The iconic scene at the end of Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, is one of them, when Darth Vader duels Luke Skywalker inside the bowels of Inside the bowels of the Cloud City, that's what Mara calls it, inside the bowels of Cloud City, Darth Vader cuts off his hand and tells Luke that he is his father. Vader then offers him salvation. Luke, you do not yet realize your importance, Vader tells him. You've only begun to discover your power. Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son. Vader, it seems, was dissatisfied with his own mere apprenticeship to the Emperor. He desired ultimate sovereign power for himself and suggested a deal with a leader of the Rebel Alliance to switch sides and participate in a coup d'etat that would stamp out the war, not incite more of it. Later in Episode 6, Luke, having by then accepted the truth of his birth, allows himself to be captured on the forest moon of Endor, knowing he will be turned over to Darth Vader. Shackled and unarmed, Luke attempts a reverse coup to persuade his father that there is still good in him and to turn away from the dark side. Vader, perhaps beginning to doubt his obligations and beginning to feel swayed by his positive emotions toward his son, rejects this entreaty but appears to do so reluctantly, as if he has no choice. You don't know the power of the dark side, he tells Luke. I must obey my master. It is too late for me, son. This points to the real importance of continuing military elite compliance within any regime, because autocracies or states of any sort are more commonly destroyed from within than without. Always. The most common way for a regime of any kind to die is by a military coup. Oh, the Empire was defeated by a military coup. Uh -huh. The New Republic was defeated by a military uh -huh. coup. I wouldn't say the Republic was. Or... The, the Republic was definitely defeated by a military coup. Because Palpatine did not seize power in his, like... That's true, he didn't do it through the legal system. Right, because he could have very easily been like, I am Chancellor for life. He pressed the big button on his armchair that said Order 66. The Republic just, like, totally was destroyed by a military coup. He used it to arrest political dissidents. The Jedi, who are political and religious dissidents, and also members of an opposition faction of the military. Star Wars, as an action series, like to dethrone its governments via military coup. And you could too. And you could too. Believe to achieve. Bring it back to the real world, you can think of about like 20 different sort of democracies in like Asia and Africa and South America that were just snuffed out once or twice or like four times in Argentina's case by military coups. Argentina, like I said, four times, the most recent of which fell apart after the British victory in the Falklands War. So <laughs> wasn't that long ago. So what is the significance of military elite compliance? You, you said earlier that the guy that we're talking about, what's his name? Mar? Yeah. Mar. He drinks the sauce, right? Yes. 
he believes in the United States. Cringe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so do I. It is kind of cringe. He believes in the United States as a concept. He believes in democracy as a concept. Cringe. No, that's a joke. I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) Okay, wow. Dictatorship of the proletariat much. Ellie Tanky moment. That's not... No, the dictatorship of the the proletariat is bad branding on Marx's part. So you have to believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat. Your, your military has to believe, if you're the Soviet Union, the military has to believe in the dictatorship of the, of the proletariat. Otherwise, they will simply replace it with something else that they like better. So your military has to buy the sauce. It has to be on board with your regime. They have to be drinking the Kool-Aid. They have to be shooting up the Kool-Aid. I don't have a second thing. And Vader was clearly not drinking the Empire Kool-Aid anymore. No, Vader's not not a fascist, right? But, like, he is not sold on the Empire. He joins the Empire as a means to save his dying wife and has this, like, directly antagonistic relationship with Palpatine. Vader is not someone who is in that position of power for any other reasons but his own ends. And, like, listen, that's true of a lot of fascists. Most, like even. I say almost all of them, yeah. People who are actually leading fascism don't tend to buy it. But like, there's, there's if a... if you just look at all, like, the insane amounts of modernist artwork that all the Nazi leaders had while supposedly decrying it as, like... Right. Or, or you look at anyone today who is... Oh, yeah. Lauren Boebert... Lauren Boebert. Groping her boyfriend in the theater while preaching family values. Yeah, her her boyfriend, a Democrat that owns, like, a a drag-friendly bar. We're being contemporary on the Daughters of Ferrix podcast. Yeah, but your your military has to buy it, otherwise you fail. At least well enough. I mean, the fucking Wehrmacht, the, like, German armed forces during World War II, didn't like the Nazi leadership that much at all, but they liked it well enough. There was this constant, like, tension and, like, hatred for Hitler. I mean, there were even Hitler. a couple of times when they tried to bomb Hitler. High-ranking, like, Nazi generals who would go and, like, have a little plot to murder Hitler and seize control of the government. And that happened, like, two or three times. Embarrassing secret. When I was in high school, I slightly more than briefly flirted with joining the Navy because I wanted free college. I think I left that in in episode one. Oh, so well, that's, not a, not a that's, brief secret that's a, anymore. That's established Daughters of Ferrix war. Public war recap. Just looking over kind of some of the training materials they give you for when you're going to become an officer, there is a surprising amount of like American civics in there. It's not all just teaching you like how to drive a boat or how to gun down Iraqi children. It's <laughs> It's also... How to be a good democratic military. Right. There's some real education in there. Exactly. So. Join the Navy. Learn how to gun down Iraqi children and how to be a good American. Vader's coup tendencies are read by Marr in a very specific way. He reads them through the lens of agency theory. He says that Vader, as a strategic military agent, struggles to abide by, but eventually acquiesces to, the dictates of his civilian principle in the Emperor. Mara says, Here, Vader has no independent discretion on the matter of turning Luke to the dark side and over to the Emperor. Yet it would seem contrary to his conflicted conscience. It raises the specter of the so-called agency problem, where the agent, whose legitimate range of actions should be cast only for the benefit of his principal's interests and within limits imposed by that principle, starts to freelance based on internalized moral considerations. 
As a brief diversion, I'm going to talk about Ahsoka, the Star Wars series that's being released this fall. However, this episode is being recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Currently, they might be closing out a deal, but it's hard to tell at the moment. As recording of this episode, those strikes are ongoing. We're seeing tens and thousands of actors and screenwriters striking for fair pay and their own secure futures in the industry among the rise of AI. No, I think that they should continue to get $1 residual checks and that's all. You know, who needs to pay people for their work. Let them lose their houses. Let them die. Which executive was it? Was it Fox who said that? I feel like it was Fox. Oh, God. I think it was a Warner Brothers Discovery executive, oh but God. we don't know who. They were anonymous Imagine enough. saying something like that. Imagine being pure evil. Like, Emperor Palpatine, hey, how are you? That is just comically evil. Like, that's not no, even like... I think it was a different executive who said... It is an unfortunate but necessary evil. It might have been the same guy. They know they're evil. It's not an unfortunate or necessary evil. It's just don't. They don't care. The point is that they don't care if they're evil. They don't care about being evil. Jesus. The Daughters of Ferrex's official prescription on evil is care about being evil. Don't do it. Anyway, Ahsoka, nor any on-screen, especially live-action Star Wars stories, wouldn't exist without the labor of these striking workers. We've got a link in the show notes to the SAG-AFTRA strike website if you want to learn more. I want to put that disclaimer out there because that shit matters. Ellie here from editing. The WGA has ended their strike with a real victory of a contract, but the Screen Actors Guild is still going, so let's hold out for a good deal for them as well. Okay. There's this scene in episode three of Ahsoka, where Hera Syndulla, a former Alliance and now New Republic general, is speaking with several members of the New Republic Senate. Syndulla is investigating the infiltration and attack on a New Republic capital ship that results in the escape of Warlord Morgan Elspeth. Syndulla follows this trail to learn about a star map that could lead the Warlord to the whereabouts of Imperial Grand Admiral Thrawn, okay? After an incident where Syndulla was attacked by Imperial Loyalists working in a shipyard on Krelia tied to Elspeth, the Loyalists were taken into custody. In this meeting scene between Hera and the New Republic senators, including Chancellor Mon Mothma, she suggests that these occurrences are connected, that they should be sending military assets to the Nanab system, to which Syndulla tracked a piece of industrial equipment escaping from the conflict at the Loyalist shipyard. That action must be taken to prevent the rise of one of the most formidable opponents of the Rebel Alliance. The New Republic senators are in a difficult position. The New Republic's official policy is one of wider demilitarization, in the hopes of avoiding further conflict and upholding the Galactic Concordance, which is the document that signifies the end of the war, a year after Return of the Jedi, and the official surrender of the Galactic Empire. A senator also suggests that Syndulla's focus on the threat of Thrawn might be motivated by the opportunity to funnel military assets toward the search for her friend in the Alliance, Ezra Bridger, who disappeared along with Thrawn a decade prior. Within the narrative, we're supposed to be fairly on Hera's side, right? We know that Thrawn and Ezra are definitely out there. We know that that is the overarching plot. We know that that's certainly what these bad guys want to do because there is bad guy POV in the series. So, potentially as a viewing audience, we are meant to see these New Republic senators opposing Hera's military action here as... We're supposed to see them as myopic. We're supposed to see them... Obstructionist. Yeah. But I mean, other people watching this think that Syndulla's appeal to her own wartime service as a mark of, like, superior patriotism is kind of fashy, right? That the civilian political oversight of military assets here, despite being against Syndulla's wishes, is necessary to uphold the Republic's democratic values. I would actually agree with those people. So, so in Imperial Japan, late Imperial Japan, Meiji Restoration Japan, that's after the early 1900s, so this is just before World War II, right? There's this concept that begins developing, or redeveloping, I should say, because it was a concept back in the Warring States period as well. But it begins to redevelop, and it's called Gokoku-jo, 
which I believe is, I'm pronouncing oh, correctly. There's a, supposed to be like a, a line over the O at the end. Geiko Kujo. There you go. I will continue to mispronounce it horribly the entire time. Geiko Kujo. Geiko Kujo. Yeah. Okay. So you got this thing called Geiko Kujo, and it's redeveloped because the Meiji Restoration state of Japan is extremely militaristic in nature. To see the invasion of Korea, the invasion of China, the invasion of most of the Pacific... I would, rather, I would rather not see it. I would also rather not see it. It was rather horrible. And essentially, it's officers, the term it translates as the low ruling high. This is essentially where officers of lower rank, or indeed the military as a whole, rebels against its superiors out of a sort of internal knowledge that what they are doing is better for the fatherland, for the state, because as true patriots, they know what is better for the civilian government and for the state than the actual civilian government and the state does. Using this concept is effectively how the Japanese military seized control over the Japanese government and played a huge part in Japan's entry into the Second World War at Pearl Harbor. And it started kind of early. Military officers in Japan's pseudo-democracy during the 1920s were assassinating non-nationalists and thereby less patriotic uh, politicians and figures on such a regular basis that one international commentator remarked that Japan's system of government had become, quote, government by assassination. First of all, that's a good line. Second of all, Jesus Christ. And this was this was while the military was still nominally under the control of the civilian government. And you could too. Also, the Kwantung Army, which was one of Japan's major armies on the Asian continent, actually rebelled en masse. And this was not a small army. This was like a million guys with tanks, guns, planes, all that shit, who were stationed in Korea. They actually went against the wishes of the government, the civil government of Japan, and invaded Manchuria. The civilian government, all the time that they're doing this, is just freaking out and telling foreign observers and foreign diplomats, no, we're going to stop. This is, we're going to stop this. And then the military would just be like, no, and keep going. And so this also kind of had the funny effect of destroying Japan's credibility on the world stage as a diplomatic partner, but that's a whole other thing. And then finally, lower ranking Japanese officers even staged a very serious coup attempt referred to as the, quote, February 26th incident in 1936, attempting to seize full civilian power for the military. How this kept happening is that most soldiers and officers who participated in these mini-insurrections were barely punished or not punished at all, showing the civilian government's incapability to actually control its troops. So when you see in, what is it, Last Jedi, that's the one everyone hates, right? No, because the Chuds hate, hate it. it. Yeah. Last so, Jedi. There is a reason that they were trying to stop Poe Dameron from always doing stupid shit. It is because of this. Because what happens when you do not punish your military for doing things that is against civilian leadership is they take over. Right. When Poe Dameron leads an unsanctioned full-scale assault on the First Order Dreadnought, they take it down and Poe Dameron loses so many military assets and personnel that the resistance is then struggling. They eventually come back from it. Crippled. Yeah, the resistance is in tatters like after that guys point for the like end. the next year. There are like twenty whole rebellion or resistance people left alive Pretty at the much. end of that movie. Yeah, you pile them onto the Falcon and you leave. And listen, not all of those were gotten killed by Poe Dameron, but there is a reason he lost his rank. If we look again at Imperial Japan, we can actually see kind of a parallel to this because what happened to Imperial Japan in the aftermath of the military seizing control via Kako. Gay Kokujo. They got the shit bombed out of them. They had their military capacity destroyed in such a fantastically horrible way that to this day, they are slightly less powerful than South Korea. <laughs> Sophie, if I told you that Hera Syndulla took her personal freighter and like six volunteer X-Wings and just kind of went to Danab, 
Court martial. Court martial her ass. I don't care. I believe she does get court martialed. Good. I hope she gets found guilty too. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna say what I think is gonna happen because the show's not over and you haven't seen it, so. Well, and I'm sure she'll get exonerated because she found Thrawn, and this is how it always goes in movies. But in real life, when you do something like that, you get court martialed and then you get a dishonorable discharge because Which, you should. Frankly, she should, and so should Captain Carson Teva. I'm sorry, I love Carson Teva, but he went with her anyway. Is this the guy? Is this the like? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, the guy, I love yes, him. I love him too. Uh, and you know, so in militaries, there's always provision to disobey orders. This is what Mar like goes on in the next paragraph to talk about is James Burke's idea of responsible disobedience. Yeah, you can, but you can only disobey illegal orders. If if the order is going to make you do a battlefield misconduct or a war crime, then you are not only allowed but legally required to disobey it. Mar describes responsible disobedience as disobedience against a civilian political master when acting for the benefit of the larger national security interest. That's a broad definition that I do not like. It's super broad. And and I mean, if, if we keep going, he says, that may be true, but very often the good of that national security interest may not be visible until much, much later, vindicating the hero's disloyalty perhaps decades after his or her retirement or death. So we just have to wait to find out if they were right. That is what I would consider a slippery slope. How is the civilian leader or military antagonist to know in the moment when the disobedience is responsible? Indeed, the Emperor had already permitted the rebels to land on Andor and access the shield generator that defended the new Death Star. He had also prepositioned his massive fleet to attack the rebels' ships when they later arrived. Capturing Luke, given the larger climactic battle on the horizon, seemed like a politically motivated waste of a precious resource. A Sith Lord, surely, is in short supply. <laughs> the military's supply of Sith Lords. I mean, the Empire only had two, so he is correct that that is a very scarce and important military supply. Mara says that using this Sith Lord resource in this way doesn't satisfy any obvious strategic military objectives, that capturing Luke is the Emperor's attempt to keep his enemies closer than his friends. And I just don't think that's true, right? Ultimately, Palpatine hates Vader's guts, and Palpatine wants to replace him so bad. If Palpatine can get either Vader to kill Luke or Luke to kill Vader, and then Palpatine keeps the victor on it as his apprentice, this is in line with Palpatine's own desire for his leadership, which is having little freaks lead by, by, by using dark magic, by using the dark side of the Force. Not dark magic, but dark magic. So something that I really think gets to the heart of the reason why the Empire is so bad at doing its job in we're, general... We're going back three episodes. We are going back three episodes because this is relevant. It has to do with military-civilian relationships. And the fact is that once militaries... Because as we've discussed, militaries really just love to seize power. Once they do it, they're really bad at their jobs. Let's say you are a hammer. I'm a hammer. You're a hammer. Okay, what is a hammer good for? Hammering. Right, and the only thing that a hammer is good at is hammering nails. So to run a society, you need to be a Swiss army knife and not just a hammer. A Swiss army knife with a hammer attached, sure. I don't think I don't think that's a thing. It's Star Wars, so it'd be like a So if you're if you're an organization that is explicitly designed to be the hammer, to be the thing that dispenses force when it is necessary for the preservation of the state, then the only thing you're ever going to be able to do to solve any problem is just try and use force. When all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. When all you have is a hydro spanner. 
There are a surprisingly large number of military governments that just cede power after like a couple years because they're like, oh shit, this sucks. I just want to be a hammer and not a Swiss army knife. I just wanted to kill folks. I didn't want to. Right. I want to suppress riots, but not at my own behest. At the behest I of don't, I don't, I don't want to be building a bridge. I want to be bombing a bridge. And you can't. Okay. I think this also kind of plays to the emperor because once he had supreme power, all he wanted to do was like weird petty shit and not actually rule the galaxy. That's correct. The Sith Lord way. Mara goes on to say that the history of American strategic civil-military relations suggests that fear of a future military-led coup d'etat is probably unrealistic, so that's nice. I will say, as far as militaries go, the U.S. military probably has the best safeguards in the world regarding, like, making sure we do not do a coup. First of all, as I discussed earlier, there's, like, there's actually a phase, you will not believe this, in U.S. military officer training called indoctrination where they, like, indoctrinate you into being an officer of the United States. I'm surprised that's the sort of thing that hasn't made it into Star Wars already, you know? And also the fact that our supreme commander is not a position. A surprising number of countries have the president and then the supreme commander of the military, whereas in the United States, the civilian leader is the supreme commander of the military. Kind of like the emperor, for the record. Yeah, there's that. There's the fact that our... We don't just have the guy who's the supreme commander of the military. We have the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is, like, a council in charge of the military, but they all report to the president, who is the supreme commander. Just like the empire. Yeah, and also the fact that most U.S. soldiers are probably just, like, your pretty generic lib or conservative who does not want to overthrow democracy helps a lot. During episode four, A New Hope, the audience becomes privy to a gathering of senior imperial officers inside a large sterile conference room aboard the soon-to-be-completed Death Star. General Tag, we can immediately discern, is fraught with anxiety. With the station not yet fully operational, he warns that they are still vulnerable to an attack by the well-equipped Rebel Alliance. Moreover, Tag fears that the Death Star's use might mean the Rebel Alliance will continue to gain support in the Imperial Senate, at which point he is abruptly cut off by the entrance into the war room by Grand Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader. The Grand Moff, a position of great influence that seemingly serves as the most senior uniformed officer, is in charge of the Empire's most important weapon and is a regional governor general beholden only to the head of the state, the Emperor. Interrupting Tag's fretful whining, Tarkin seeks to alleviate the general's concern over the interference of the political branch that had previously offered some check on the Emperor's sovereign war-making discretion. The Imperial Senate, Tarkin confidently relates, will no longer be of any concern to us. I have just received word that the Emperor has dissolved the Council permanently. The last remnants of the Old Republic have been swept away. That's impossible, Tag replies. How will the Emperor maintain control without the bureaucracy? The regional governors now have direct control over their territories. Fear will keep the local systems in line. Fear of this battle station. This bickering is pointless, he declares. Now Lord Vader will provide us with the location of the Rebel Fortress by the time this station is operational. We will then crush the Rebellion with one swift stroke. The Death Star, it becomes clear, will be used both to deter and punish, intended to firmly collapse organized resistance to the Emperor's unilateral mastery over the galaxy. Promising that the war will be over by Christmas or in one swift stroke is historically a very bad idea. This scene, though probably more violent and shorter than most meetings of the Joint Chiefs of Staff inside the Pentagon's tank, offers us a point of departure for thinking about perhaps the most consequential of all challenges that strategic civil and military leaders suffer, translating policy into military action in a way that is politically useful. To achieve the ends of that policy is what ultimately animated Karl von Clausewitz's thinking and description of war in general. In On War, Clausewitz argues that war is a pulsation of violence. (laughs) 
I call me, call me war. The, call me the war. Way. The way I be a pulsation of violence. Subject is a very funny phrase. War is a pulsation of violence, but subject to the action of a superior intelligence. Call me war. The way I'm subject to the action of a superior intelligence. Correct. War is not merely an act of policy, but a true political instrument, a continuation of political intercourse. <laughs> a continuation of political intercourse carried on by other means. War is only a branch of political activity, in no sense autonomous. Yeah, war is politics. War is politics with guns. War is politics with a lightsaber is what war is. So, transferring policy into military action in Colin Gray's terms, is the strategy bridge between ends and means, Mara writes. It is such a challenge because, at least in a modern democracy, the strategic military leaders are sometimes excluded from the civil political process. Even when they are allowed inside the tent, so to speak, they may misunderstand the overarching policy and therefore misuse the military instrument in its defense. Yeah, this is why you have to keep your military on a tight leash, right? Because, as we discussed a moment ago, when you're a hammer, all you see is nails. And so there's a real tendency when you are a military officer of any sort to be like, well, the solution to this problem could be, you know, blowing something up. But you might not, because you are not the civil leadership, understand what the overarching strategy is, what the diplomatic strategy is, what the domestic strategy is. So it's very important for you to be under control and understand that you do not see the whole picture. And that's kind of like, I think, a really important part of being a major important officer these days. Because you can't just go blow stuff up. Maru is clearly writing from the standpoint of a guy who is in the military. And he says here, strategic civilian leaders often lack any empirical or experiential knowledge of how and why the military works at the strategic level. And that is true. That is also the type of thing you would say if you are in the military. But like, I'm going to invert that quote for a second, because the inverse is also true. True. Strategic military leaders often lack any empirical or experiential knowledge of how and why civilian life works at the strategic level. They risk under or over utilization of deadly means based on that misunderstanding. Thank you, Senator Ziona. Yeah, military leaders are just as apt to misunderstand how diplomacy works as diplomats are to misunderstand how military intervention works. I mean, once again, when your military coup works and your military is in power, they don't want to rule. They just like, want to do military. His, his job is bomb. This Ken's job is force choke. That's why a stratocracy, right, a government led by military rule, is not a type of government that's going to last very long. And that is... Stratocracy is how the Empire is described in the Rogue One Visual Dictionary. The use of the Death Star to bully star systems into compliance is clearly not for the good, and yet this scene hints at the greater issue. On one level, it illustrates that politics acts as a restraint on the unfettered ability of the sovereign to use military force to effectuate policy. By dissolving the Galactic Senate by fiat, the Emperor removed a source of democratic debate, counsel, and formal opposition to his grand designs for the Empire. The only checks on his authority then became the uncertainty of military victory over his armed enemies, an uncertainty that his Death Star was built to overcome. The ease with which Tarkin executed an entire planet, and his choice of which planet, also suggests either the tacit or explicit delegation of authority from the supreme political sovereign, the Emperor, to his expert military agents. This is yet another aspect of strategic civil-military relationships that worries pundits and politicians. Though certainly taking a form that would be tantamount to President Dwight Eisenhower allowing General Douglas MacArthur to use tactical nuclear weapons in Korea or China at his sole discretion, 
Such a trusting relationship is not limited to science fiction or alternative history. Consider General Maxwell Taylor's relationship with President John F. Kennedy during his one-of-a-kind stint as military representative to the president, placing himself between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the president, and distinct from the National Security Advisor. He notes that the importance of an intimate, easy relationship born of friendship and mutual regard between the president and the chiefs and which is particularly important in the case of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The chairman should be a true believer in the foreign policy and military strategy of the administration which he serves, which is what you were saying earlier about Darth Vader. Darth Vader is not a true believer, so it's going to fail. Also, I do just love the story of General MacArthur because, you know, going into the Korean War, right, General MacArthur is a god in America. He is just seen as a populist as like almost superhuman in his ability to conduct military affairs. And so when he goes into Korea, he's basically given carte blanche to basically just run the whole show. And this isn't just American troops either. This is like UK. This is like, you know, a lot of troops, a lot of countries. But then he takes it too far and decides that nuclear weapons, which have historically in the United States been the sole prerogative of the United States president to order a nuclear strike, he wants to be given discretionary control over nuclear weapons, putting himself in the place of the president effectively. And he gets his ass fired with good reason, because he's trying to kind of usurp civilian authority. Absolute civilian authority over nuclear weapons, I would argue, is a very good thing to have because the military will sometimes just use weapons that they have. Anyway. Tarkin is, again, kind of a general and a governor. He is both civilian politic and military, which is to say he's military. He's a military guy. He's military in the Clone Wars, and he just bounces back and forth. And I mean, there, there is a very real revolving door in U.S. politics of military people to political people to military defense people to lobbyists. But you don't get to, to be at the same time. To, no. Ever. Unless you're the president, but that's only sort of. The U.S. president does not wear a uniform. There are presidents in, in some countries where you wear a uniform if you're the president. You don't wear a uniform if you're the president of the United States because you are not part of the military. And Tarkin, he is a true believer. Tarkin's a true believer. That's what Mara says. That's what we know. Tarkin's an asshole, but he's in... He's he's all the way. He's also kind of like a like a 1960s mutually assured destruction theorist a little bit, in that he just thinks that having a super weapon will deter all future war. <laughs> After the advent of long-range nuclear weapons that could be easily delivered without, like, an airplane, there are all these guys who are just like, well, now we can never have a war again because everyone just has nuclear weapons and it'll be great. And as it turned out, they were stupid. So... Star Wars, a product of the 60s, who could have guessed? Mara goes on to affirm what we've already been talking about. He says, without objective control, the military becomes the government, and the government becomes the military, a wholly risky state of affairs. It would suggest an opportunity for the military to pose a political threat to the existing leadership, and it meant a Napoleon or Alexander-type command, the sovereign himself, on horseback, leading the charge and taking the field of battle. Although I do think there is something to be said for trying to keep your military a little apolitical. That's what the essay says. No, I think he's right, because if we look at Let's think about the Soviet Union for a moment. And as I always do when I I often think about the Soviet Union. Yeah. When you when you became a soldier of the Red Army, badass name for your military, by the way, I've gotta say, you did not swear allegiance to the Soviet Union or the people of the Soviet Union or even like Comrade Stalin or whatever. You swear allegiance to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which is just I think the quintessential example of a military becoming extremely political, in that the ruling political party of a state has direct control over the military rather than the actual government. Like, that's if Joe Biden's they-them army was like 
an actual thing. And like when you become a U.S. service member, you're just like, I pledge allegiance to the Democratic Party and to the Joe Biden for which it stands. That's what they do, don't you know? They do not. They hand you your rainbow colored gun and your pronoun badge. Yeah. So I think that the military not swearing allegiance to a political party is good. And it results in the military being used to like do violence inside of a country less. Reading on, the Star Wars universe demonstrated the absence of strategic dialogue, essentially, between what is civil and what is military, and the ways in which those are separate and the ways in which those work together. No questions about the Emperor's quest for power arose, and none seemed to have been burning the consciousness of the people in, you know, that Death Star meeting room. No thought was given to whether this tool, with all its menacing brutality, was the right tool within the arsenal to achieve the purposes of order and stability the Emperor envisioned. While never imposing an obligation on the master, the principal or client always maintains absolute sovereignty and direction over the representation, their military expertise and experience would have been useful to the civil authority, at least as a way to work through potential political objections or plan ahead for potential military setbacks. In a pure dictatorship such as the Galactic Empire under Palpatine, those fruitful, even if time-consuming and inefficient councils, are less likely to occur. In a more democratically-based system of war powers, such as the U.S. Constitution establishes, the civilian principal retains ultimate discretion and command authority. But this does not mean the voice of reason or alternatives is never heard. Quite the opposite, American political traditions tends to still follow Huntington's model for objective control and suggest that nagging voice of subject matter expertise is mandatory. Basically what all this is saying is that having separation of powers is good, having no single person able to wield the entire military might of the state is good, and having the military unable to exercise political authority is good. Military dictatorship, probably not the best idea, probably not the most efficacious governmental system, etc. Things that I'm sure we can all broadly agree with regardless of our stance on military funding or even the existence of a military in some cases. Just to finish up, Maru says, Unquestionably at some point, strategy-making practice necessarily involves both civilian and military elites. Mm. Both must understand the basic and prevailing conception of what any war existing or impending is really about and what it is attempting to accomplish. As the complexities of organizing and building the material, training the manpower, and employing the weapons of modern war seem to ever increase, hmm, War generates the need for an ever-expanding technocratic professional staff expertise to wisely manage the processes that aid civilian leaders in translating policy into strategy and strategy into military operations with tactical objectives. There is much to be said about, uh, maybe war bad. That's not what the, gonna, that's not what the conversation is about. I'm going to take a contrarian position on this. War, inevitable. I... Uh, according to, what's his name? Coker. Yeah, war probably inevitable. War bad, though. Yeah, we're bad. Some things that are inevitable are bad. Closing statements. Military, civilian government, good to have different ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Military can be good. Civilian government also can be good. Military can be relevant and useful. I'm not comfortable saying military can be good. That's fair. I would I say... I don't even know if it matters if military can be good. I don't even know if states can be good. So States are good. The official daughter's affairs policy is that states are bad. Destroy your local. You're going to have to censor that. No, my opinion is that state is good, actually. I think that having any state of any sort is inherently better than having none at all. Look Always. at us. Look at us coming on a podcast, having different viewpoints. I know. And getting along. This is what the left could never do. <laughs>
So anyway, tell your local military to not do a coup. Yeah, text whatever military general, whatever country you're from. Are there other countries than America? Um, Canadian. Oh yeah, whether you're American or Canadian, those are the two options. We didn't even talk about the weird military relations in Russia, but like, if you're Russian, oh, yeah, well. tell your military to stop. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you're a Russian, just, you know, uh, fucking FaceTime Vladimir Putin, say, hey, maybe you don't. If you want to listen to new episodes as they release, you can find us most places you can listen to podcasts on our website, daughtersofferrix.com, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at ferrixpod, F-E-R-R-I-X-P-O-D. If you have any questions, suggestions, or corrections, you can send them to our show email, daughtersferrix at gmail.com. No one's emailed us, so, so please email me. Please tell us what you thought. I'll talk about you on here. I'll call you my best friend. Just send me an email, please. I have been Eleanor Mueller. You can find me at the letter bomber on most platforms. Sophie, where can good people find you? You can find me at Sophia and SLC on Twitter, where you can see me visit every Episcopal church in the state of Utah. And at the Redline Podcast, also on Twitter, where I do transit and cities. Our episodes are written and edited by me, Eleanor Mueller, and Sophia Dunstan. Our podcast art is by Jill Mueller. Our intro and outro music was arranged by me, with themes by Nicholas Bertel and John Williams. Thanks for listening.